0: I don't know about you, but I have gotten uh, a lot of different kinds of rejection letters and notices in my life. Employers saying, you know, we're not interested in hiring you, or uh, occasionally sometimes uh, maybe from a person that I had a romantic attraction to, maybe in high school or college. Uh, Thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I'm going to keep looking elsewhere. Uh, I wonder if any of you have ever gotten a rejection letter from your insurance company. It's kind of a weird idea, isn't it? I mean, we send these companies money in order to provide coverage and help cover debts that we incur, and as soon as we take advantage of the benefits, either the rates go up or we use too much of the benefits, and then they send us a letter saying, we don't want your money anymore, and we're done with you, goodbye. Uh, Max Lucado uh, confesses that he has a bit of a lead foot when it comes to driving, Uh, And so after a series of speeding tickets and uh, an accident that he got in, he got a letter from his insurance company canceling his coverage and saying you need to get covered somewhere else. Now, we understand that from a financial perspective, right? Profits and losses, it's a business. They have to cover their expenses, and there's risk pools and and all that. So it, it makes sense on the one hand. But I wonder if you've ever feared that someday... Would you ever get a letter like that from God saying, you know what, too many debts, you're too high of a risk, not interested in covering you anymore? What would it be like to get a letter from Heaven's Underwriting Division? Dear Mr. Schultz, we're writing in response to this morning's request for forgiveness. I'm sorry to inform you that you have reached your quota of sins. Since employing our services, our records show that you have erred 327 times in the area of envy. And your prayer life is substandard in comparison to others in your risk pool. (laughs) Further review has shown that while your knowledge of doctrine is in the top 20%, you have not lived out what you already know. And in spite of numerous warnings and encouragements, you have unhealthy tendencies to not trust God. Unfortunately, grace has its limits, and you need to begin the process of searching for some other form of coverage as your policy with us is canceled effectively. Jesus sends his regrets and kindest regards. <laughs> we laugh at that, but do you ever wonder if somehow maybe that actually could happen? That God is just going to get to the end of his patience with us and say, you know, I have carried you and I'm tired of it. I'm, I'm done. Maybe it's not that. But we do live with fears and insecurities in a lot of areas of life, maybe relational insecurity. Are we going to make it together as a couple? Are our kids going to be okay? Is there going to be anyone for me someday? How do I handle life now that I'm all on my own? There's personal insecurities that maybe we struggle with. Am I going to make it? Is there any hope for me? Could could I actually change? Do I have to be this way? Is my life about anything meaningful? Where, Where am I heading? And we probably all know about financial insecurity. You know, I'm not in the 1%. And the system seems to work for those who, are, who are already have a big pile. Other people seem to be getting ahead. What do I do with this mountain of debt that's looming on the horizon? Is there going to be enough money for me at the end of my life? And, of course, there's all the social, political, cultural anxieties. I mean, we don't have to look very far to see a, a very divisive political atmosphere and, and problems in our communities, problems in our nation, and... and People, whoever they are, they're keeping us from doing what we need to do to take the country in the right direction, and we have all these problems, and we can't even agree on what the problems are, much less the solutions. This is not looking good. What's the outcome of this going to be? You know, we can wonder, will will I ever have enough? Will I ever know enough? Will I ever do enough in order to measure up? whatever it is I'm supposed to be measuring up to, it can make us fearful, it can make us stressed. And, and in response to that, it's sort of natural for us to look for some way maybe to just ignore the problems, to numb all of that, you know, with drugs or alcohol or parties or relationships or hobbies or the Internet or books or sports or another relationship, whatever it is. Or, on the other hand, All that uncertainty can can make us aggressive and and sort of demanding, like, I need to get this under control, and if I can just make things work out the right way, if I can be in charge, I can manage it all and make it turn out the way it's supposed to, and then we become pushy and demanding and and controlling, and and then that just creates more stress because it's all on my shoulders to, to make it all work out, right? It's all up to me. Is there any hope in the middle of all that? The stress, the insecurity, not knowing what things are going to turn out? Any hope in those temptations to to wear out or to stress out or to freak out or to flunk out? Well, we're continuing looking in the book of Ephesians at this series called Greater. And we've been looking at a God who is greater than those fears than the anxieties and the struggles and temptations greater than us greater than all the other things that we tend to run to to find hope and stability in the middle of it a God who is full of joy and life and love and forgiveness and peace and purpose that he invites us to enter into and experience as as we know him and a God who offers real security So if you haven't already, you could turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, if it's one of those black Bibles in the seat underneath you. It's page 1158, 1159, and you can turn there on your phone or your electronic device in your own Bible. Today we're looking at a passage that points us in the direction of real security, and that's something we all need. I wonder if you've ever had a day like this. Uh, the alarm goes off, you hit the snooze button too many times, you wake up in a panic, uh, you rush downstairs, grab something to eat, run out to the car, it doesn't want to start, traffic is backed up, you get into lor- work late, the boss is on you right away, I thought you were supposed to be done with that project already, this is not good. And the day is just one series of disappointments and frustrations and troubles and there's traffic on the way home and, and you finally get home and uh, and the kids are arguing, and, and your spouse has cooked some unappetizing casserole that nobody's interested in, and, uh, and that never happens in my house, by the way, because Amelia's an awesome cook, and we're always unbelievably thankful for, uh, for, the, for the meals she prepares for us. Finally, it's time for bed at the end, end of a long, frustrating day, and you, and you just flop down, and your head hits the pillow, and if you even pray, maybe it's something like, God, I do not know where you were today. But, uh, man, I could, I could really use you showing up tomorrow. And then a, a few days later, it's the other story. You wake up and the sun is shining and, you, and you're refreshed and you jump out of bed. I'd love to know what that feels like, right? Right. Uh, you have all this extra time in the morning so you have this great experience of Bible study and prayer and you're you're praying with your wife and your kids before you head out the door and uh, and no traffic on the roads. You get into work and your boss calls you into his office to tell you you've been doing a great job and you're in line for a raise and a promotion this year and uh, everything works great. You get home. It's a wonderful family dinner and everyone's happy and talking about the good things that happened that day and uh, you, you spend time at the end of the night, like uh, an hour in Bible study and prayer, and you pray for your family and you pray for the missionaries and their families and everything on the prayer list and all the names of God that you can think of. And, uh, and, and you hit your, your head hits the pillow and you're just thinking, God, this was such an awesome day. Man, you blessed me. You showed up. You were with me. Thank you, Lord. And if we have a day like day number two, we tend to think that, you know, God was with us. And he was working out his plan, and everything was going the right way. And then on other days, it feels like everything's out of control. And and somehow God isn't at work, and he wasn't with me, and and he didn't show up. And, And it's hard to trust that God is working out something intentional when we're in the middle of trouble and stress and anxiety and frustration and disappointment. See, here's the thing that I think God is getting at in this passage. The only way that we're gonna have real security is knowing that God is at work in all those things, whether it's day one or day two. I find real security, God gives me security in knowing that he really does have a plan that he is working out. My life is not random, it's not chaotic, it's not purposeless. God is working out everything, Paul says, according to his purposes in verse 11. It's all working out. Because see, the temptation is when, when life is going great and everything's working out the way I think it should, then I'm able to believe, oh, well, of course God's in control. And of course he knows what he's doing. But then when I have one of those terrible, no good, horrible, rotten days, things are frustrating and, and, our temptation is to feel, well, God is absent. He's off somewhere else. He's not working out his plan, or maybe his plan is bad, or maybe somebody else has grabbed control of the steering wheel and is taking my life in a direction that isn't good, and God's not involved. And what that's saying is, see, is I'm tempted to have security when I feel like things are going the way I want them to go. And my security is about my plans, But I can never have security based in my plans and my goals and and the direction I think life should go. Because when it doesn't work out that way, I end up fearful and stressed and anxious. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. All things. According to the counsel of his will. We know a God in Jesus Christ who has been at work from before this world ever even came into existence. And who will be at work all the way until this earth dissolves like snow. And that he had a plan and a purpose for us in the middle of that that is being worked out in the reality of my everyday life. In all the crazy details. To see, we have to know that I cannot have security and confidence in our plans, in our goals, in our desires, because Amelia married me thinking that she was getting a guy who was on this great career track with good prospects in the corporate world, and that our life was going to be about big salaries and new cars and dinners in nice restaurants and vacations in exotic places, and, and it has not exactly worked out that way. God has been good in the middle of all of it. We have no complaints. But it has definitely not looked like we thought it was going to be when we got married. And maybe life has not worked out the way you'd planned either. Maybe it's been a a traumatic accident. Or a discouraging health diagnosis. Or a job that's frustrating. Or really significant health problems. Or unemployment. Or loneliness. Or failure, even. See, when we are tempted to wonder what is God doing, or if he's doing anything, is there even a plan? This is what God wants to remind us of. He is working out all things according to his purposes. And the hard part is we don't know what his purposes are, and sometimes we don't like his purposes. But I can only have security in knowing and trusting that there is a plan that God is working out. And that's tough. When we're in the middle of just the reality of our everyday lives and and we don't know what the plan is and the things that are happening, we don't like. I mean, we go to work day after day. And for all of us, there are parts of our jobs, of course, that we don't like, we don't find particularly rewarding. and, And then... Even the parts that maybe we do like, there's just the routine of it, right? Day after day after day, it's you know, getting the spreadsheet to balance and filling out the reports and just doing the same stuff that has to be done. Or sometimes at home, you, know, you come home maybe to an empty house and you feel like, where's that person for me to share my life with, God? Or maybe on the other end, you come home to a house full of all kinds of noise and chaos and dirty diapers and toys everywhere and kids that need to be fed and changed and bathed. Or, or maybe you're caring for adult parents who need to be fed and bathed and changed. And, and wh- how is this part of some grand eternal plan? It just seems like it's life. It's just stuff. And God wants us to understand that, that life is not this just pointless routine of work and struggle over and over again, there actually is a purpose that God has for our lives. And I ultimately find security when I know that I am living for God's purposes. Look at what Paul says here, going on in verse 12. We who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Paul's talking about the Jewish people, God's old covenant believers who were the people of his promise. And and now we're included in that as Gentiles, as non-Jews, as people who've come to trust in Jesus ourselves. Our lives are for the praise of his glory. That is what we are here for. You remember what what Paul said earlier, as we saw last week, that God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. That God is summing up everything in Jesus and our lives are part of that as we are living for the praise of his glory. Every one of us is building a kingdom. Whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you have a title deed of some sort, you have a kingdom. Your life is, consists of rights and responsibilities and opportunities and possessions and relationships and you have an effective area of rule in those things and you are building some kind of a kingdom in that sphere of influence in your life you are investing in something you you are looking for treasure somewhere you are living for some kind of a purpose and all of us are serving some kind of a master or lord or king, whether it's us, whether it's a boss, whether it's a spouse, whether it's somebody else. But only the God whom we come to know in Jesus Christ rules us for our good and for eternal purposes of real significance. That's why God goes to all those lengths, for example, you know, all throughout the Old Testament to warn his people about other gods and, and idols that would lead us astray and ultimately enslave us. Paul's going to go on to talk in Ephesians 5 and, and warn us about the fruitless deeds of darkness. And God is not saying they're just, you know, don't do bad stuff. He's warning us that those things are fruitless. The things that do not align with his purposes and his glory and his goodness are empty. They are broken. They are purposeless. And they lead us into slavery and addiction and misery. The only security, the only purpose that our lives can have is when we are living for something bigger than ourselves. Because all the stuff that we earn, all that we accumulate, all that we achieve, all that we experience, it all goes away at the end, right? All the money that we earn, we literally can't take it with us. The stuff that we store in our garages or in our attics, somebody else is going to get it or have to figure out what to do with it when we die. It's all going to turn to dust. All the things that we agonize over, we fight over, we fret over... Someday, it's all going to be gone. And the only thing that's going to matter is a life that is lived for the purpose of God's greater glory. Because that's the only thing that's going to last forever. Dan Meyer tells a story uh, of an elderly woman in his congregation who was praying about this. and God was challenging her to look for some way to use her gifts, her situation, to, to minister to other people. She was an elderly lady living by herself in an apartment But there was a large university in their town, not far away, and people had told her she had the gift of hospitality, and so she was praying through that, and she realized I have an apartment, and I have afternoons free, and I have time that I can invest in other people. And so she got a stack of three-by-five cards, and she wrote on them, Are you homesick? Come to my house at 4 p.m. for tea. And she wrote her name and address and phone number on it and started posting them up around campus. And, and it was a slow start at first, but, but eventually there started this whole stream of students coming to her apartment for a friendly face and a word of encouragement and, and something to eat. And when that woman died 10 years later, there were 80 honorary pallbearers at her service who were all college students who had found a friendly face and a cup of tea, and a word of encouragement, and good news about a God who loves them, and has a purpose for their lives. This is a woman who simply said, here I am, here's what I have, I want to use it for you, Jesus. At our church in St. Louis, our associate pastor and his wife live in the parsonage, right next to the church, and they have a house, and at that time, three little kids, and that got Casey, the wife, to thinking, well, here's what we have, and here's our neighborhood, and there have to be other young moms in our neighborhood who could use encouragement and connection. And I have a backyard and a home, and so she just opened it up to start kind of a mom's play group. And we'll throw the kids out in the backyard and sort of keep an eye on them, and, and we'll have a cup of coffee and just connect. And, and it's become this ongoing ministry that, that's now reaching dozens of families and who knows how many dozens of kids to encourage moms that they're Lives have purpose, that what they're doing matters, and that God is with them in the middle of it. And, and one of our elders at our church started thinking, you know, there's this barber that I go to about every four or five weeks to get my hair cut, and I, I don't know anything about him. I don't know what he believes. I don't know what's going on in his life. But here I am every four or five weeks in this guy's chair for 45 minutes. What if I use that as an opportunity to get to know him, to be good news and to share good news in his life? See, our lives have meaning and purpose in all the routines and all the errands and all the stuff that just happens over and over again when we can live for God's purpose, to be for the praise of his glory. What would that look like for you? What would that look like in, in your neighborhood, in your community, in, in your work? That you are going into those places to be for the praise of God's Glory. And all of us could probably tell stories of saying, you know, I tried that and, uh, and it did not work. My neighbor didn't appreciate it. Nobody responded. Uh, I, I took a risk and things did not turn out the right way. Or, or I got into this thing and I thought that God was calling me to do this thing and, and then the door slammed in my face and, and where was God in the middle of that? We... we make and break promises and because we thought we could count on someone and you know there may have been times when we thought I was counting on God and he let me down you know is, is God like me when I tell Amelia oh yeah I'll be home at five thirty. you can count on me I'll remember to make that phone call yes I'll take care of that honey and, and then have to go back an hour or a day later and say oh I forgot to do that you know we've all been on the receiving end of other promises, sometimes that are more significant, that got broken. I'll be there for you, or till death do us part, or elect me and I'll get an office and solve all the problems, which is funny if you think about it because every politician says that and we keep going back and electing them, thinking this is the one that we can trust to do it, right? It's been that way as long as I've been voting. We live in a world of broken promises and scandal and manipulation and mistrust. Is there anyone that I can really count on? Is there anyone that I can trust to do what he says he's going to do? Any security for the future? Anyone who knows what is going to happen and can do anything about it? And I think many of us as Christians, it's easy for us at times to even wrestle with questions about our own faith. What if Christianity is just a nice story that I've chosen to believe? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is there anything after death? What, what if I'm wasting my life for something that's not even true? And then we wrestle with doubts about ourselves, too. Like, what if I do go too far? What if God does give up on me? Will he get to a point where he says, you know, enough? I, I could forgive that, but that this thing, No. I, man, I thought I could count on you, and you really let me down. So here's here's what God wants us to understand: God never says, "I was counting on you." Man, I, I really I was really banking on you coming through for me. I thought you would be different. God has never been counting on us; He's counting on Himself. He is the one that our security is grounded in. That's the security that we have in the gospel. You see, my security cannot be in me doing a good enough job, in me being a good enough person, in me performing up to a certain standard, in knowing enough or having enough or achieving enough. Because God does not put confidence in us. He works through us. That's the amazing thing, right? These unfaithful, half-hearted, semi-committed followers. And God chooses to work through those things. Our efforts do matter. What we does, what we do, makes a difference. He uses us to accomplish His will, but it's His power. The outcomes are on His shoulders. It, it means yes, we work hard. We cooperate with the Spirit who lives in us. But the pressure's off because I don't have to have security in other people's purposes or performance or faithfulness. Because God gives me security, ultimately trusting not in my promises, but in his promises. In his character. Look look at what Paul writes again here. We have obtained an inheritance. Did, Did you notice that Paul writes this as though it's already done? We have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to him who works all things according to his purposes... When we heard the word of truth and believed in him, you were sealed, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When Princess Diana died in 1997, she left a pretty sizable estate for her boys, William and Harry, uh, something like $20 million. And then with Uh, investments and interests. By the time they got to their 20s, it was upwards of something like 30 million dollars. But Diana had written her will in such a way that the boys could not inherit that estate until they turned 30 years old. And in 2012, when uh, William turned 30, he inherited his portion of the estate. And a few years after that, Harry turned 30 and he inherited the estate. The estate was theirs. It was promised to them, It was managed for them, it was in their names, set aside for them, but they did not take possession of it until the time established by the one who made the will. There was nothing that they could do to disinherit themselves, even all the stupid things that they did in their 20s that didn't disinherit them, but they didn't inherit until the time that was determined by the one who chose them there was nothing they could do to be unchosen out of that inheritance. And that's a picture of what Paul is saying here as children of God, that we have an inheritance and it's based on Jesus' promise and Jesus' determination, not on our faithfulness, not on our living up to the standard, not on our avoiding doing stupid things. And God has taken a seal like one of those wax seals that you would use in olden days and stamped us with the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us, guaranteeing the inheritance until the time when God brings it all to fulfillment. And that Holy Spirit, the third person of God who comes to live in us, now helps us live and do according to what we will inherit one day. He lives to produce Jesus' life in us. And what that means is, because the inheritance is secure, I can be free now. The pressure's off. It's not up to me. So now the stress is gone. I can unclench my hand, and and that frees me to to do daring, dramatic, faith-filled things for God. Because there's nothing I can do that will ultimately result in me failing. Failing. Now, I know there's all kinds of other warnings and encouragements and exhortations to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Absolutely. But it's God who lives in us to will and to act according to His good pleasure. And when I have that confidence, now I live beyond this fear that, you know, if I do something crazy or ridiculous, God's not going to say, "Man, what you did was really stupid there. I can't believe that. I thought you were my kid. You thought I was calling you to do that. You misheard me, so I'm done with you and I can't use you anymore. Or it gives us the confidence now to know that because that's never going to happen, now I can step out in faith and and be willing to take a trip to Ukraine or go into a dangerous part of the city or, or have that conversation with that person at school or at work. What difference would it make if we lived with an unshakable confidence that our future is secure in Jesus' hands and that there's nothing that I can do that is going to disinherit me, that is going to ultimately result in failure or ruin or God's rejection of me. If I live with a security that is greater than all of that, that I cannot ultimately lose, what would that do for how I live my life for the praise of his glory? Pastor Mark Buchanan, uh, writing on this, says, The heart of the Bible's message is the shocking, improbable, astonishing, breathtaking good news that I am the one that Jesus loves. I am the tax collector whose house Jesus enters to, to break free the grip of greed and bring salvation. I am the leper that Jesus cleanses and who is drawn to worship him. I'm the complaining invalid whom Jesus says, get up, take your mat and walk. I'm the prodigal who has taken the father's good things and run off to a far country and then in brokenness and repentance to come back to him only to find the father is already running to greet me and throw his arms around me and say, my son whom I love. And I'm also the self-righteous older brother standing out in the field, critical of those prodigals, and how dare they come home after what they've done, whom the Father says, my son, I love you, and everything that I have is yours. I'm Lazarus, the one who's been raised from the dead, and whom Jesus invites to, to sit down and have a banquet with. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of any of it, but God makes me worthy in Christ. And he uses me for the praise of his glory. Jesus makes me his own. He loves me without condition. He forgives me freely. He writes his name on me. He fills me with his Holy Spirit. He goes ahead to prepare a place for me. And he tells me that I am secure in him. I am the one that Jesus loves without fail. All the way to the end. And so are you. This is the life, this is the source of security and and of everything that we do. Knowing that I am the one that Jesus loves because life and ministry and joy flow out of that. I'm secure because God has a plan that he is working out in the middle of everything that I'm going through. That God guarantees you will receive everything that he has promised. You are secure. Secure. So what will you do with that? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that your grace is so big and deep and wide and, and it gives us a security that addresses all of our fears and worries and insecurities and doubts and covers all of our failures. And God, we, we acknowledge that your grace is not an excuse to, to sin, to presume on your love. But You want your grace to free us, secure us so that we could live for the praise of the glory of Christ. Oh God, would that be true of us? Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have tended to put our security in ourselves or in what we can own or have or control, or in the outcome that we think we want for our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the guarantee, and in you we have security that frees us to live boldly, confidently, lovingly for the praise of your glory. Would that be true of us, Jesus? We pray it in your name. Amen.